Well, as you turn, uh, can I encourage you, to, as you sit, can I encourage you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. It's uh, page 972 in the Church Bibles. Page 972, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. The reading that we um, had a little bit earlier from uh, Paul. Matthew 8, verse 5. Page 972, we're looking at the second in our series of looking through chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel over these four weeks. And uh, let me pray for us as we turn to the Bible now. We've sung, our Lord and God, that you are exalted. We've sung that you are Lord. We've sung that your truth shall reign. And while we know that's true, we pray that it would be uh, true in our lives, that we would both exalt you, treat you as Lord, and that your truth would reign in our lives. So please speak to us now. Show us more who the Lord Jesus is. May we be more amazed by him than ever before and so more determined to live for him. And we pray it in his name. Amen. I I used to do a proper job. I worked in the newspaper industry for um, seven years and one of my colleagues, Steve, became uh, a really good friend. In fact, he asked me to be his best man. Uh, In our lunch hours at work and after work, we often talked about Jesus. For Steve, um, Jesus was a a fascinating character, but although he was interested to find out more and more about Jesus, in fact it was often Steve who brought the subject up, although he was interested to talk about Jesus, uh, Steve couldn't see why he had to follow Jesus. He said to me one day, I can't see why you keep saying to me that it's so crucial to commit my life to Jesus. I don't follow him now and life's just fine as it is. Well, look, in our section today, Jesus tells us why it's important to put our faith in him. He says eternity depends on it. Look at verse 11 of Matthew 5. He says, I say to you, Jesus is speaking, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast. This is a, a, a picture of, 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 of eternity. Will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says it quite boldly here and boldly, on judgment day we will either be with Jesus enjoying a banquet or cast away from him in a place of unimaginable suffering. So having faith in Jesus really matters. Now as we look at this amazing incident in Matthew chapter 8 we see three things and if you're taking notes here are three headings for you. Uh, One, real faith grows when we see our real need. Secondly, real faith comes from investigating the real facts. And thirdly, real faith is crucial in the light of the real future. Firstly then, real faith grows when we see our real need. uh, And verses 5 to 7. The story begins in chapter 8 and verse 5 where Jesus met what he describes later on as an astonishing man. Look at verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralysed and in terrible suffering. Now those two verses tell us an awful lot about this man. He was an army man, a Roman centurion. Now I was pretty hopeless at history at school. Come to that, I was pretty hopeless at everything at school. I scraped five O levels, four of them at grade C. I didn't even bother with history. But you don't have to be a historian or even an expert in Roman history to glean significant information from the fact that this man was a Roman centurion. The hint is in the name. 
A centurion either means he's just hit a hundred in a test match for the Roman first eleven or he has a hundred men at his command and this evening I'm presuming it's the second. So with a hundred men under him, there's no question this man was successful. In civilian terms, he'd climbed the corporate ladder. He wasn't at the top of the tree, but he certainly wasn't at the bottom either. And that's confirmed in verse 6 where we discover that he had a, a household servant. So he was relatively successful probably lived in a leafy neighbourhood like, 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 like forward. But successful as he was, there came a day when this Roman centurion realised that there are some things in life that are simply out of control. Now, on this day, he faced up to the fact that he needed help. You see, verse 6, he went to Jesus because his servant was in terrible pain. Uh, seeing someone sick and suffering and facing death does make us realise our helplessness. Uh, my mum was, was very poorly earlier in the year. She was literally at death's door. Uh, when, the, uh, when the medics say to you, it could go either way, you know what they're saying. And as we sat by her bedside, my dad said to me on several occasions, I wish I could swap places with your mum. Uh, he and I and my brother, as we look, looked on, felt so helpless. There was nothing we could do. Of course, when everything's going along nicely in life, when we've got everything under control, and when we're in charge, we can feel almost indestructible. And when life is good, we don't think we need to think about Jesus. But sometimes life comes and kicks us where it hurts. Serious illness visits our family. Death becomes a a very real and present danger. And when that happens, we realise how helpless we are. That's what happened to this centurion. Suddenly, and maybe totally out of the blue, he was faced with a situation that he couldn't deal with. And that's why he turned to Jesus. And that is so often the environment in which faith grows. See, my friend Steve could never see the point of following Jesus. But then everything was going well for Steve. And at this point, some of you will be saying, yes, it is what I always suspected. Faith and Jesus are for those who can't cope with life. Just a bit of a crutch. Is that what we're saying here? Well, I'm going to say in one sense, yes, that is what we're saying. Please don't misunderstand. Following Jesus is tough. Follow Jesus and it won't always go down well with your friends. Uh, Follow Jesus and you will have tough choices to make. Follow Jesus and he'll make demands. uh, His demands will make uh, an impact on our diary and our wallet. How we use our time and our money. He insists on us putting others first, dealing with disagreements in a thoughtful way. It's tough following Jesus. To follow Jesus is not for wimps. Uh, Although, let me say, if you are a wimp, be assured there's a place for you too. (laughs) But following Jesus is not easy, and yet it has to be said that no one will follow Jesus until they realise their need of him. See, I see it when I take funerals. Sometimes it takes the death of a loved one for people to face up to the fact that they don't have all the answers to life. Sometimes it takes that for self-assured and confident people to question what life is all about. The week before last, I was speaking to a good friend of mine who's a pastor in a church in London. He was telling me that a week or so back, a member of the congregation brought a guest to uh, church. My friend was preaching and on the way out the guest was really angry with him. 
angry with the message that he preached. Uh, This guest gave him a real tongue lashing on the door. Well, a year has passed since then and just a couple of weeks ago my friend heard that this this poor lady who'd been so against him last year, this poor lady was now in the throes of uh, the last throes of a terminal illness. Uh, So my friend dropped her a line telling her how sorry he was to hear how poorly she was and offering to go and see her if he could help in any way. And the day she received his letter, she called him and said, I need to see you, please come quickly. See, illness strikes and we realise we don't have all the answers. That's what's happening with the centurion, isn't it? Not his health, but the health of one he loves. In Luke's Gospel, the same um, uh, incident is recorded and we're told there that that the centurion loved his servant. See, he's realised there's something in life that is out of his control and he knows he needs Jesus' help. Until we believe that, we won't ever uh, turn to him. That is the environment within which faith grows. Of course, we don't actually need to face a personal tragedy to see it. Look at the world we live in. We're making a pretty pretty bad mess of it, aren't we? Don't you despair sometimes when you read your newspaper and watch the television news? I know I do. Global warming, the war on terror, poverty. Did you see the news report from the Labour Party conference a couple of weeks ago? Did you see uh, Bob Geldof there on stage with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown? And Geldof's frustration as he spoke was obvious. He was sort of answering questions. He was quite clearly frustrated that people won't act to save those dying of unnecessary starvation and disease. We know, don't we, Geldof has campaigned tirelessly to get governments to see the needs of millions of souls in Africa. And he was quite clearly at the end of his tether and he said, and look, I can't quote him accurately because of the expletive he used, but he said, why won't we do something? Just look around at the world. If we'd open our eyes, we'd all feel what the fence centurion felt that day. For him it was very personal. But if we'd open our eyes, we'd see there are issues in the world that are out of our control. We do need help, don't we? Well, my friend could never see it, my friend Steve. Indeed, I used to pray for him that something would happen to him to help him see his need of Jesus. You might be surprised at this. I used to pray, and this is quite a dangerous prayer, I used to pray, whatever it takes, Lord, may he see his need of you. Indeed, I want to say I think that's a great thing to pray if you have friends and family who aren't Christians. Pray that something would happen to show people's need of Jesus. At the moment, you might not think that's very necessary, but you will in a moment. And maybe if you're here this evening and not yet a wholehearted follower of Jesus, then pray the same thing. Ask Jesus to show you why you need him. You might be saying, I just can't see the point. It's great you've come this evening. Well, just say a prayer. Say to Jesus, Jesus, if you're there, show me why I need you. The centurion then turned to Jesus on that day because he knew he needed help. See verse 6, Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralysed and in terrible suffering. And Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. Now now that verse 7 says so much about Jesus, doesn't it? It says how powerful Jesus is. I was speaking to a friend the other day and, and I said, John, how's your day been? I'm so tired, he said. I hardly got any sleep last night. My son's ill and I was up all night with him. And so naturally I replied, I'll go and heal him. Well, of course I didn't. 
You and I wouldn't dream of responding as Jesus did. Yet my guess is that we hardly batted an eyelid when we read verse 7. Jesus said, I'll go and heal him. And the fact that we didn't bat an eyelid just goes to show what an impact Jesus Christ has had on this world. If anybody else had said that, we'd just we'd go, what are you saying? Verse 7 shows how powerful Jesus is, but it also shows, I think more importantly, how compassionate the real Jesus is. You see, the centurion came to him, my servant lies at home, paralysed in terrible suffering. Jesus said, I'll go and heal him. The centurion didn't have to cajole Jesus or plead with Jesus. He didn't have to perform any religious ceremony to come to Jesus. Seeing his need, he just asked and Jesus couldn't wait to help. I'll go and heal him. I wonder if that's your view of Jesus. I'm not just talking to people who are not yet convinced of these things, but Christian, is that your view of Jesus? One who's quick to listen. One who wants to help you. Or or do you think of a God as, you know, who's up there as someone who's far away and only listens when we've done something to get his attention. You know, like Silas. Do you remember in, in, the monk in the Da Vinci Code? Do you remember him? Beat his body and inflicted pain on himself to get God's attention, to get into God's good books. That is just not true of the, of the true living God. See, look at Jesus and the living God is so compassionate. I wonder if you've ever looked, really looked into other religions. It's remarkable. Do you, do you have people asking you this question? I have a lot of people saying to me, well, making a statement usually, you know, um, they, they say, well, all religions are the same. And yet actually, when you push a little harder, you find they've never read the Bible and they, they, they know next to nothing about other religions anyway. It's an amazing statement. What if you've looked, really looked into other religions? Or just even looked into the Bible properly? I, when uh, my wife and I got married, um, we, uh, she's uh, uh, comes from New Zealand, and um, uh, we were married in, in England, and uh, we went to New Zealand on our honeymoon, and we stopped off in Singapore. Uh, we were only there a, a day and a night. Uh, it was a sort of uh, layover until we uh, went on to New Zealand. And we did uh, something called the, the city tour to try and see as much of Singapore as we could. And we went to a Hindu temple. And uh, while we were at that Hindu temple, there we saw... Um, uh, people going to these gods, taking fruits and nuts and berries to the gods. And you could see them calling on them to listen. But there was no assurance that they were listening, that these gods were hearing them. They just kept giving them stuff to try and get the gods to listen to them. Have you looked into Islam? The Muslim has no guarantee that they've done enough for Allah to accept them. No guarantee of spending all eternity in paradise. Allah is distant and remote. Uh, That's official Islamic doctrine. Allah is remote. Here we see the true and living God. Jesus is compassionate. Verse 7 is wonderful. I'll go and heal him. The real Jesus is one who responds quickly to those who really want help and who come to him with a genuine heart. Do be encouraged by that. If you're saying, I wonder if Jesus is really there. If you come with a need, if you say you need him, he'll he'll respond quickly. You don't have to be sort of searching. It's not a long search for Jesus. He's there to be found. He's longing to help. Is that how you see him? Or have you constructed another Jesus in your mind? 
one who, like a horrible big brother, is moody and mean and who's got his bedroom door closed, who's very unlikely to help you when you turn to him because he's got better things to do. No, here is the real Jesus. He longs to help those who come to him. The centurion said, Lord, my servant lies at home, paralysed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. And why was Jesus so quick to help the centurion? Well, if the first point is real faith grows when we see our real need, the second point is real faith comes from investigating the real facts. In verses 8 to 10. I love the centurion's attitude towards Jesus. Look at verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Uh, It's an astonishing thing to say. Well, Well, Jesus thought it was anyway. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those who follow, I tell you the truth, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Jesus was astonished, and that's an astonishing thing. Throughout the Gospel, we see people amazed by Jesus, amazed by the things he said, the miracles he performed, the kindness and authority he displayed. Throughout the Gospel, people are amazed at Jesus, but here is Jesus, verse 10, astonished by the faith of the centurion. takes something to astonish Jesus, doesn't it? He knows everything after all. And what was it that astonished Jesus? Well, it was the, ver- the words in verses 8 and 9. It was the fact that the centurion knew that Jesus had divine authority. See, the centurion said, verse 8, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And then he, he uses this wonderful illustration in verse 9 to say, I know all about authority. When I speak to my slave, he does what I say. When I give orders to the men under my command, I say go, and they jolly well go. No questions asked. And of course, anyone in the army understands this, don't they? See, when a soldier had just been promoted to second lieutenant, and that little pip burns there on his shoulder, he feels very self-important. And he says to someone in the courtyard, go. That man may have been in the army 20 years longer than him, but he goes. Not because John Snook's second lieutenant has any authority in himself, but because he possesses the authority of the army and the government behind him. We civilians understand it too, don't we? When that um, fresh-faced policeman tells us to stop, I'm really getting old. They do look younger, don't they, policemen, all the time. You know, the policeman who doesn't even look as if a a, a, a razor has ever, uh, ever been on his chin. When he orders you to halt in that most irritating way, you halt. Even though he looks as if he's only just out of kindergarten. You halt because he has behind him all the authority of the government. The centurion understood that. He knew all about authority, but he, he saw that Jesus had an authority that was quite apart from the structures of this world. See verse 8, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. No, I see something quite different about you. You you shouldn't come into my home. I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. But just say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority. And we knew all about authority. And he knew that Jesus' authority wasn't from any man-made structures. He knew that Jesus had a far superior authority. I was told a, a true story a couple of weeks ago. Um, every um, every uh, few months, uh, a number of us uh, who, who have to do this job get together and we sort of uh, 
uh, sort of try to help each other with the sermon that we're preparing. And uh, I was uh, telling this group that I was uh, preparing this and, and one of the other clergymen told me this story about an annual Army Remembrance Day service. Uh, the adjutant of uh, a battalion had organised the Remembrance Day service with the padre, the, the clergyman. And uh, during the service, the, uh, the padre announced that Lieutenant Jenkins would read the lesson. But someone had forgotten to tell Lieutenant Jenkins that he'd be reading the lesson and he didn't move from his seat. And so the regimental sergeant major stood up and said, Lieutenant Jenkins, please read the lesson. The Padre's commanding officer is superior to your commanding officer. (laughs) And that, of course, is what the centurion recognised about Jesus. He saw that Jesus had divine authority. And Jesus was astonished at his face, verse 10. Now, now that says an awful lot about faith, doesn't it? Uh, People sometimes say to me, I wonder if they've said it to you, I wish I had your faith. As if in some way I've managed to whip up faith from inside me. You know, I've sort of generated it. It's there somewhere. I've just got to get it up and and sort of raise it up. uh, That's not how faith comes about. Faith is based on the evidence, on, on the facts before us. See, the centurion didn't whip something up from inside himself. He looked at the evidence that was before him. He'd seen Jesus. He'd obviously observed Jesus. He'd seen the things he did. Now, this Roman soldier would have been trained at the Sandhurst in Rome and he would have been skilled in observation. Perhaps he had to write little summaries of the men under his command. You know, he'd write to the man above him, this man can be trusted, this man can't. He knew how how to look and assess people. He became good at observing situations and people and he observed that this Jesus of Nazareth and the evidence before him showed him that this was a unique person. He saw that Jesus had divine authority. See, he listened to the teaching of Jesus, he saw the miracles of Jesus, he watched the character of Jesus. He came to realise that this Jesus was something and someone quite exceptional, that he was actually out of this world, Literally. See, faith is based on evidence. And that's why Jesus contrasted the faith of this centurion with the faith of the Jews around him. Look again at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. But you see, he should have. Jesus should have found people in Israel with this same faith. The Jews of Jesus' day had exactly the same evidence before them as the centurion did. But of course, the Jews of Jesus' day were lumbered with presuppositions, one of which was that God was transcendent and he could never come down to earth as a man. No, this can't be God because God can't come as a man. When I speak to Muslims about Jesus, I find that they get stuck on exactly the same point. Do you see, despite all the evidence here, they cannot see what this centurion saw, that Jesus has the authority of God himself. See, we've called this series The Real Jesus. We want people to look at the New Testament evidence about who Jesus is. Because people have so many preconceived ideas about him that bear no resemblance to the truth. I wonder if that's you here. It's great you've come tonight. If If you're looking into these things, thank you for coming. It's great you've come. Have you ever read through a gospel? It would be a great thing to do. You might have heard all sorts of things about Jesus. Do you know what he's really like? Christian, do you really know what Jesus is like? Have you just taken on board all the the little things? Have you read it for yourself? 
We'd love it if you'd come to the Open to Question course that Ali was speaking about earlier. Look at the evidence. Find out who Jesus really is before you write him off. The centurion then had real faith, faith based on evidence. And he needed it because no one else could help his servant. You see, verse 6, his servant was paralysed and in terrible suffering. It's obvious why it was so important for the centurion to look into these things then. Why is it so important for everyone else to have faith in Jesus? Why did I keep saying to my friend in the newspaper business, Steve, why did I keep saying to him, whenever he brought up the subject, you really do need to trust in Jesus? Why should you bother to look into the person of Jesus? Why should you, Christian, try to persuade your friends and your neighbours and your colleagues and your family who aren't Christians? Why should you bother to persuade them that they too should become, particularly if they're happy? You ever look at people and think, they're perfectly happy, they don't know Jesus, do you think that? They don't have any need of Jesus. Is that what goes through your mind? It's what goes through my mind sometimes. When life is going well for people, I think they're all right. They don't need Jesus. Well, listen, thirdly, real faith is crucial in the light of the real future. Verses 11 to 13, and very briefly. See, why did I spend so much time trying to persuade my my friend Steve to follow Jesus? Look again at verse 11. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, We thought about it last week. Jesus claims to hold the eternal destiny of men and women in his hands. We saw it in chapter 7 verses 21 to 23. He says, everything depends on me as to where you will spend eternity. When we spend eternity beyond the, where we spend eternity beyond the grave depends on whether we know Jesus and whether we are known by him. Now look, we, we need to stop here because most of us think that eternity is so far off. Most of us think it's just not something that's really, really very relevant to us at the moment. Life goes past so quickly. Flies by. can't believe I'm 43. I know you can believe it, but I can't. It only seems like 20 years ago that I was 23. I know it was only 20. It only seems like five minutes ago that I was 23. Life goes by so quickly. Ask some of the people, older people in the... Doesn't life go by quickly? And it gets faster and faster. I'm sounding like my dad now. You know, I mean, it's what he used to tell me. We've got to believe it goes so quickly. Eternity seems so far off. Goes so quickly. And anyway, look, it, it, it doesn't need to be growing old that brings you into eternity. We've had uh, too, much, too many uh, recent reminders of that in this, this congregation. People dying at very young. In chapter 8 and verse 10, Jesus talks of, of eternity. And he talks of eternity in terms of a banquet. That's how eternity in the new creation begins. A great banquet. And look, it will be so good. I wonder what picture you have of eternity. Do you have this picture of them, you know, sort of floating on a cloud with a harp, eating cream cheese or something like that? Is that that your picture of eternity? Wearing an ethereal negligee? Is that it? And don't think about it, please. (laughs) 
Look, uh, as, we, as we close, keep your finger in Matthew 8. We're going to come back, but just uh, very briefly, let's turn to Isaiah 25 so that we get what eternity with Jesus will really look like. Page 708 as we come to a close. Page 708. And Isaiah 25, verse 6. And here is is God throwing a party. And when God throws a party, believe me, he does it in style. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. See, God is the host. He's prepared a rich feast with the best wine and the choicest cuts of meat. And that's just the beginning. It'll be the introduction to a wonderful eternity and a new world. Have we grasped that eternity will be in a real world? It won't be somewhere sort of um, ethereal. It will be solid and real in a world. And it will be so good, verse 8, that death is eradicated and suffering is eliminated and scandal is exterminated. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. No more funerals, no more hankies. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all their faces. He'll remove the disgrace of his people from the earth. The Lord has spoken. That's where Jesus wants to take us. That's where Jesus wants to take your friends, if only you'll tell them. But if we refuse his offer, as many in Israel did as he walked around the earth 2,000 years ago, the alternative is terrifying. Let's close with Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. The alternative, the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you believe that? Jesus says the alternative is a place of eternal suffering, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you believe that? Do you even care? If we really believed it, it would be on our minds daily and we'd want to be telling everyone we meet about the Lord Jesus. If you're not a Christian here, there's no reason why you should believe it yet. But it would be worth looking into because if this is true, there's nothing more important. See, whether you enjoy eternity or endure eternal suffering depends on your response to Jesus. And it's only when we get eternity in view that we grasp why it is so crucial to have real faith in Jesus. See, one lunchtime, as I talked to my friend Steve about Jesus, he said to me, Paul, I live without God now so I can live without God in eternity. I asked him what he thought um, eternity would be like without Jesus, what hell would be like. He said it would be a place of parties and sex and practical jokes. It was just going to be a ball. Don't be fooled. If you think the way Steve thinks, then think again. Verse 12, eternity apart from Jesus is a place of darkness and pain. Hell is the absence of God and therefore the absence of all good things because God is the giver of all good things. That's why it matters. And if you are wondering if you can be sure that Jesus can deliver, look how the story ends. Verse 13. Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Oh, no doubt there was a much checking of watches at that very hour. The centurion's servant was healed the very moment Jesus spoke. 
And the important thing is Jesus delivered on the promise of verse 7. I will go and heal him. He healed the servant. The servant who, verse 6, see how he's described, was paralysed and in terrible suffering. That was a little picture, wasn't it, of eternity without Jesus. Paralysed and in terrible suffering. And so as Jesus healed the servant, he was, as it were, drawing the curtain back on eternity and giving us a glimpse of what he can do for every man and woman who has real faith in him. See, in the light of eternity, we see our real need. The need to be delivered from real suffering. And that is why every one of us needs Jesus. Have you seen that yet?